Good morning. My name is David Swanson. Do I know you? So I haven't been here for a little while. Um, uh, next week is, I don't know if it's an anniversary, three-month anniversary of our Bronzeville church plant, uh, which is exciting, right? So it's been a few months since I've been around. My primary responsibilities now are in Bronzeville on the south side. And I'm going to share a few things with you about that because you need to be up to speed as part of our church. But I want to pray before I do, and I want to actually pray for Pastor Michael and Pastor Peter. Pastor Peter's away uh, this Sunday taking a much-deserved little breather. Um, Because I'm no longer in Logan Square on Sundays, he doesn't get as much of a break this summer. Uh, So typically his rhythm is he takes a few weeks off during the summer. He doesn't get as much as a break this summer, so I want to pray for him. I also want to pray for your Pastor Michael because, uh, as you may have noticed, he's kind of back and forth between Logan Square and Bronzeville. Have you noticed that? So he's actually preaching in Bronzeville right now. He preached here last week. I think he's preaching here next week. Uh, So he's a a man divided, um, and he's doing his best to pastor you, Logan Square, even as we tap into his gifts and abilities as he preaches in Bronzeville uh, on a regular basis. So will you join me in just praying for your two pastors? God, we we thank you that you provide um, leaders for your church. Lord, we thank you that you raise up women and men uh, with gifts and abilities to serve faithfully, uh, to preach with clarity, uh, to demonstrate hospitality, uh, to raise up new leaders. And so, Lord, we thank you for Pastor Peter and for Pastor Michael and, and that you have given them to your church. Lord, we pray for both of them that you would energize them this summer with your Holy Spirit. Uh, God, um, as, as more is required of them these days, we pray that you would be more than enough in their lives. We pray that as they find themselves giving away more, that they would be filled more with you so that they would be lacking in nothing for the calling that is on their lives. Pray especially for Pastor Peter today that you would give him a refreshing week, refreshing with his family and to his soul and bring him back to your church the renewed vision for where you're calling us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, can, I, can I tell you a little bit about Bronzeville real quick? Is that okay? I'm going to anyway, so. Um, so we, we're at this about three months right now, and if you don't know, uh, if you're new today or somewhat new, it's the vision of of our church, of new community, to plant multiple churches in the city of Chicago and, Lord willing, around the world. And so our first church plant is in Bronzeville. We meet at Drake Elementary School, 2722 South King Drive. How many of you have come and worshiped with us? Will you just put your hand up in the air? Um, Thank you for that. I'm going to tell you three ways that you can support this church plant in a minute, but uh, that's that's one of them. So thanks for for coming um, and and worshiping with us. It's happening. Uh, God is advancing his church throughout our city, and we're getting to experience it in Bronzeville. So we gather for worship every Sunday at 1130. By the way, it's just as hot where we worship as it is here. We don't have air conditioning either, so don't be jealous. And they meet later at 1130, so it's maybe a little hotter, you know? We might be a little bit more dedicated than you, but um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, And we're seeing, here's, here's the exciting thing. We're seeing people come. Um, there's a core group of folks who was sent by this church. Some of them were a part of Logan Square for many years. Others of them 
came to Logan Square in order to be sent. They wanted to be a part of a church in Bronzeville, and so they came here for a month, two months, three months, in order to be sent by our church. So there was a core group of people who was sent. You remember on Easter Sunday, we all stood up here, were prayed, and sent out. But, but we've been seeing new people come. Uh, people from Bronzeville, people from uh, uh, um, Bridgeport, from Hyde Park, from Woodlawn, from Kenwood. People are discovering this new church. And it's not like hundreds and hundreds of people are pouring through our doors. We don't expect that. But we're seeing healthy growth. We're seeing new faces every single Sunday. We're seeing people get connected with our community group ministries and begin serving in areas of ministry. Um, And you need to be encouraged by that because many of those folks haven't been in church ever or haven't been in church for a long, long time. Um, And so we're seeing our church be a safe place for people who are disconnected from church and who feel disconnected from God. Are you, is that encouraging to you? Uh, Here's the other thing that you should be encouraged by is the ministry opportunities that our church is already discovering. Frankly, it's too much for us as a three-month-old church. Uh, We've been involved with the school that we meet in. We did a big uh, cleanup day at the school, planted a bunch of flowers. They had a talent show a few months ago, a couple months ago, to uh, raise money for their after-school programs. By the way, you're aware of the budget cuts, right? So local schools losing a lot of money this coming year. So they do the talent show to raise money for very critical after-school programs in the neighborhood. And so we were able to show up, support the talent show. We have some guys who do film. They filmed the whole thing. They did like behind-the-scenes interviews with the kids. We set up their sound system for them. So they had these kind of microphones. They thought they were so hot with these things. It was awesome. It was so cool. Film the whole thing. We're going to edit a DVD so that the school can sell it as a fundraiser to parents and other folks in, in the community. Um, the school's already asked if we would provide mentors uh, for some of their students. Uh, I met with a, a, a neighborhood organizer a couple weeks ago. Uh, part of, he, he started the, the largest neighborhood organization in Bronzeville. And they're working on shutting down different liquor stores in the neighborhood because they found that uh, these liquor stores kind of breed violence in the neighborhood and they, they hinder uh, indigenous local economic development. And he said, can, can you help us do that? I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> How do you do that? Uh, um, we've helped out with uh, a literacy campaign already. There's an organization in the neighborhood looking to find out what the need is for adult literacy programs and classes. So you need to be encouraged, too, that there's work to be done in our city and that already, and this is, I would say, borderline miraculous, already our church has enough credibility three months in that people are requesting that we partner with them in mission in the neighborhood. Is that encouraging to you? Uh, yeah. So here's three things, three really quick things that you can, you can do, three very quick things that you can do uh, to be involved in the life of this church plant. You sent us, okay? So your role in this is critical. Some of you I know feel disconnected from this. It's like, yeah, there's some people who aren't here anymore. But it doesn't, so here are three things. First, we need you to be praying for us. We need you to be praying for us. And, and I'm willing to hang out here afterwards if you want to come up. Some of you are prayer warriors. I would love to share with you in, in, in more detail how you can be praying for our church. But we need you to pray, um, uh, we need you to pray for God's protection over us. Uh, we're, we're kind of on the front lines right now. And it would be easy to be distracted 
It would be easy for the enemy to distract us, okay? So we need you to pray for God's protection over this infant church. We need you to pray that God would help us get brand new people connected with the mission of our church. Does that make sense? Because those of us who planted the church, we feel very connected with the mission of our church. It's our church. But new people who come, we we need to find creative ways to get them connected with the mission as soon as possible. So pray for that as well. And then, frankly, we just need more people involved in ministry. We've had some people serving for months without a Sunday off at this point, and we all knew that's what it was going to be like. But we need, again, to get some of those new people connected into ministry so that we don't burn everybody out. So can you pray for those three things? Second thing, second thing, come and visit on a Sunday morning. Come and visit on a Sunday morning. You can actually, with a little bit of creative planning and um, driving skills, you can go to both services in Logan Square and Bronzeville because uh, we don't start until 1130. Um, almost every Sunday, there's been two, three, four, five folks from Logan Square who've come down just for the Sunday. And I cannot tell you how encouraging that is to our church to see you come and worship with us, to share in the mission and vision of this brand new church. Some of you have actually come and volunteered in ministry, have helped out with the worship team or in our children's ministry. Thank you. But come and visit. Just your presence will be an encouragement to this early church. And I think you'll be encouraged by what God is doing in our city. Third thing is what Nathan Albert mentioned a second ago, which is the concert of prayer. We're going to be doing this on Wednesday the 21st. I want you to be writing this down right now. I want you to be circling this in your bulletin right now, please. Wednesday the 21st at 7 p.m. We're going to be in Drake Elementary where we worship on Sunday mornings. And we're going to be worshiping together and we're going to be praying together in some some creative ways. But we want to do this as one church, Logan Square and Bronzeville. So I don't, I really, I want you to come. I'd love for you to take this very, very seriously. I'd love for you to put this on your calendar or move some stuff around on your calendar so you can be there worshiping and praying as one church in Bronzeville. It's going to be deeply encouraging to your family who's in Bronzeville. Do you have that date? What's the date? Huh? 21st of this month, 7 p.m., so be there. Thank you for listening, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back to Bronzeville after the service, but I'm willing to hang out a little bit. If any of you want to know more details about how to pray, I want to tell that to you. I want you to know specifics even more than I've shared right now about how you can be praying, okay? Open your Bibles to Acts. Acts. Can, I ha- can somebody grab a chair? Not Nathan. He's kind of gimpy today. Can somebody else grab a chair and just bring it, bring it over here? Oh, there's one up there. Okay, uh, thank you. Um, we have a, a, an incredibly long passage to look at this morning, which is how your pastor rolls um, when he's away. <laughs> have you noticed this? This is like, I don't know, I haven't been around, but I think this has got to be the longest one yet. This sucker is got, it like, uses half my time just to read the whole thing. Uh, but I'm going to read the whole thing. And, uh, and then pretty short and sweet sermon today, just two points, because it's warm. Thanks so much, Thaddeus. Because it's... Uh, don't fall backwards. Okay, I'll try not to. I'm going to put it up here. Um, because it's warm, it's 4th of July, so we're going to keep it short and sweet today. But uh, let, me, let me start by reading this. Turn to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23, verse 11. We're going to be going all the way through... I'm not even going to tell you because you're going to start zoning out right now. When I stop, that's when we're done, all right? Acts chapter 3, verse 11. Um, Paul has been arrested at this point. He uh, made a statement uh, in the temple in front of the Jewish leaders that God is now 
pursuing all people. That there is now no distinction between any one ethnic group and another. That the reconciling work of Jesus on the cross is good for all people. And that kind of set off a bit of a riot. As Paul was prone to do, he finds himself in prison. Verse 11, chapter 23, in Jerusalem. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul. By the way, this is the last time in Acts that we hear the Lord speaking directly to Paul. Okay? Last time. Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we've killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sisters heard of this plot, he went into the barricades and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it that you want to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting uh, wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. By the way, the 40 men who've taken this oath, it's, it's a suicide mission, really, because Paul is being guarded um, by Roman soldiers. Uh, and so it, it, they know that in order to, to try to kill Paul, that they will most likely lose their lives as well. Okay, So they're pretty serious about this. Verse 23. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, that's the, uh, that's the commander, to his excellency Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. Uh, By the way, not true, right? Do you remember from last week? That's not how it happened. The commander found out that Paul was a Roman citizen when he was about to flog him, remember? So he's doctoring the story a little bit. He's making sure he comes out looking pretty good. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. Okay, so Caesarea is about 60, 65 miles from Jerusalem. So this is about halfway halfway there. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Sicilia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. We're going to keep going. 
Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. Why are, they, why are the Christians called a Nazarene sect? Did Sword just say, Jesus? Uh, Jesus is, was from Nazareth. And everybody kind of knew this. Jesus was known as the Nazarene. And so, among other titles, the early Christians were known as this Nazarene sect. Okay. Where are we? Verse 9, is that right? Okay. The Jews joined him in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Verse 10. Then the governor motioned for him to speak. Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple court doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was the one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Okay, let's stop there. Uh, There's a lot, right? There's a lot. Uh, here's the thing I, I find really sort of interesting as we get to this part of Acts. Um, it, it feels like the whole tone of the book has changed. Uh, because up to, up to this time, it's been kind of it's been nonstop action in Acts. It's, it's story after story after story of movement, of activity. The gospel is making its way around the world and nothing, nothing can stop it. Um, let me just give you a few examples of this. Uh, chapter 13. I want you just to get a sense of the movement, the trajectory of the book of Acts up until this point. Chapter 13. The two of them, Paul and Barnabas, set on their way by the Holy Spirit 
went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. There's movement, there's proclamation, the gospel is being demonstrated and proclaimed, chapter 14. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there in Iconium, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace, enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. Speaking boldly, miraculous signs, wonders, exciting things are happening, chapter 16. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate, this is in Philippi, to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple uh, purple cloth, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. So more traveling, new cities, new conversions, bridging ethnic and racial divides. Chapter 17. Paul then stood up at the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you are worshiping is something unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you. Paul is at the center of philosophy, of culture. He's debating with some of the most learned men in the known world at this time. Chapter 19. Paul entered the synagogue in Ephesus and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall. This went on for two years so that all of the Greeks and all of the Jews who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. There's opposition, but there's conversion. There's proclamation. Luke says uh, Paul stayed in, in Ephesus long enough that everybody heard of the resurrected Jesus. Story after story of how Paul is using God and his companions to advance God's mission of the resurrected Jesus in the world. And then all of a sudden, it just, it's, it's, the brakes are slammed on. And last week, Pastor Michael uh, looked at uh, um, chapter 21, verses 30 and 33. Listen to the change of pace. Listen to the change of pace. The whole city was aroused and the men came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple And immediately the gates were shut. The gates are shut behind Paul. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. The gate slams shut behind Paul, and he's bound with two chains. Up until this point, it's been gospel momentum. The church is growing. The church is exploding. The word of God is preached. The resurrected Christ is proclaimed and demonstrated. Uh, People who were opposed to one another are now worshiping together. And now the door shuts behind Paul. He's chained. And by the way, by the way, He will not be a free man for the rest of the book of Acts. Paul will be in prison for the rest of this story. This is how his story ends, in fact. And so I wonder, as Luke is putting together his his story, his letter of the early church, 
right? He has to choose which details do I include and what do I leave out? I only have room for so much, right? I wonder, was it a temptation for him to stop the story right before Paul got arrested? Because, you know, that would make a good story. We can leave out this other stuff. Right? Paul traveled around the world multiple times. The church was exploding. God had done amazing things. The end. But he doesn't. And, and he doesn't just keep going. He dwells on this. I, I mean, I, I want him to, to spend more time on the miraculous signs and wonders. I t- tell me about that. That sounds exciting. No, no. Miraculous signs and wonders. What I'm going to spend time on, Paul's in prison. What I'm going to give you all kinds of details about, uh, lawyers. <laughs> Nothing against lawyers, you know. It's just your work doesn't tend to be super interesting a lot of the times, I don't think. But, but to Luke, it was. It was important. Take, take encouragement from that, lawyers. <laughs> Luke camps out here. He's in in no rush. He's going to give us a lot of details, more details than we initially are probably interested in. Why? Why does he do this? Why does he choose to write his letter this way? After so much momentum, so much activity, so much triumph of the church, why now does he stop and focus on what to me feels like defeat? Why? Why? I promise I'm going to keep this sermon simple today. I only have two points, okay? So here's the first one. Can we put the first point up there, Valerie? The mission of God moves forward through any means God chooses. If I'm going to answer the why does Luke include all of this detail, this is my best attempt at an answer. I think Luke wants you and I, I think Luke wants the church that he's writing to to understand that the mission of God will advance through any means that God chooses. Up up until this point, we have followed the disciples, the apostles, people like Peter, Barnabas. We've seen uh, early converts like Lydia. We followed Paul for a long time, and amazing things have happened. And and Paul is always very careful to give credit to God alone, right? But you and I know, you and I know, um, that something shifts dramatically when Paul is now in chains, Because now there is absolutely no way for Paul to take any credit for what God has been doing. The man's freedom has been taken from him. The door has slammed shut behind him, two chains around his wrists. He has no option to take any credit for anything that God will choose to do from here on out. You see this? Do you know that it is in weakness? That it is in powerlessness that God's majesty and glory is most often displayed. Do you know that? God choosing to use this stammering shepherd who wants nothing to do with God's plan to rescue his entire people out of slavery. Moses could take no credit. God choosing this young teenage virgin to give birth to the Son of God. All Mary can say is, your will, your will. And a homeless rabbi 
that same Son of God, hanging on a cross, emptied, the Bible tells us, of his power and his authority so that God's majesty could be put on display. Paul is in chains. The door has slammed shut behind Paul. Maybe it appears like like defeat. But the consistent theme throughout the scripture, and I would claim the consistent theme in your life, is that God is most glorified in our weakness. In times when we feel like we have no more power or say or authority or control. And so in this time, God chooses to work in some um, unorthodox ways, I would say. Paul's in chains. It's no longer really his story. He can claim nothing. So who is God going to work through now? Who's God going to work through now? God chooses to work through the high priest Ananias, through the commander Claudius, and through the governor Felix. Uh, Pastor Michael preached a little bit about Ananias last week, so I'm not going to say a lot. He was a pretty corrupt high priest. He didn't come about his position legitimately. He was actually appointed by the Romans, so he was kind of a puppet high priest. He was pro-Rome, and he was, he was pretty violent, actually. Any dissent, he did not have any trouble dispensing violence to, to get his way. And it's Ananias who travels the 60-plus miles from Jerusalem to Caesarea to make sure that Paul gets what's coming to him. Very rare for the high priest to do that. Must have been an exceptional circumstance that would have got him to leave Jerusalem, the holy city, in order to be there in Caesarea. Then there's the commander. He's kind of like a middle-level sort of soldier. Not a lot of power, not a lot of authority. We already see he takes the opportunity to make himself look a little bit better in his letter to the governor. He's the one who organizes this huge um, parade of troops and soldiers and men with spear. I find this kind of actually funny, ironic. Here's Paul, right? He's used to traveling around by himself, sneaking out of cities at night, evading capture by any means necessary. And, and now he's, he's like being marched out of the city with this royal troop, Uh, on these horses, with these... It's funny to me how God will do that. God is going to advance God's mission by any means necessary, even if it's summoning an entire group of soldiers to get Paul out of the city. And then the third person that we see, the high priest, the commander, is the governor, Felix. Um, There's some interesting stuff on Felix, but um, what you really need to know is that he was an incredibly violent man. Like many Roman governors, he, he ruled, um, he kept the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, with violence. So any rumor, any hint of an uprising in, in, in any place under his jurisdiction would have been put down with violence right away. No questions asked, no conversations. He's not interested in justice. He's interested in stability, right? He's, he doesn't really care for Paul, about Paul at all. He, he kind of tries to get out of it. He asks Paul, where are you from? Because if Paul's not under his jurisdiction, he doesn't actually have to try him. But unfortunately for him, Paul comes from Sicilia, which is under his jurisdiction. So these three men of incredible power, right, in complete control over Paul's life. Paul is now in chains. He has no say 
over what he's going to do. And we have these three figures of immense power and authority that God is choosing to work through. The beginning of our passage this morning, we find God, the Lord, coming to Paul and saying, you will testify to me in Rome. You testified to me in Jerusalem, Paul. You're going to testify to me in Rome. So how is God going to get Paul to Rome at this point? Well, how about this commander? Uh, How about this corrupt high priest who really is totally uninterested in the ways of God? Well, I'm going to use him. And uh, the governor. Yeah, let's use him too. Paul, you're going to Rome. By any means necessary, God will advance God's mission. So today is the 4th of July, Independence Day, right? Anybody got plans? Besides coming to church? By the way, way to go. You're in church on the 4th of July. That's awesome. You all know people who are not in church on the 4th of July. 4th of July uh, is an interesting reminder to me about how Christians often interact with our country, with our government, with the notion of just what America is. And we have two extremes, two kind of polar extremes. And all of you um, know people, or maybe yourself, are on one of these two extremes. One is the idea that America is somehow an exceptional nation, particularly blessed by God in order to advance God's purposes in our world. And you maybe you kind of fall in that direction or you know folks that fall in that direction. And I would say that most of the really strong kind of patriots, Christian patriots in our country would, would lean in that direction. There are others who see America as not necessarily God's tool to accomplish God's purposes in the world, but actually opposed to Uh, God's purposes in the world. They they see America not as God's chosen vehicle to accomplish God's purposes in the world, but actually a stumbling block or something that's in the way of God's purposes in the world. And and so these folks would fall less on the patriotic side of things and maybe more on the dissenting side of things. Are you tracking with me? I'm not going to ask you to label where you are um, because we don't have time for what would ensue. Uh, but you understand that that's sort of how it works a lot of times. And probably most of us, we're somewhere in between, right? We're not on one of these extremes. Uh, but it's interesting to me that both of these extremes um, put a lot of emphasis on the government, on the state. So the, 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 the government uh, or the nation becomes either that which needs to be redeemed in order to accomplish God's purposes or that which needs to be strongly opposed so that God can accomplish God's purposes. Wherever you fall, the state, the nation, is, is incredibly important for God's ability to, to accomplish God's purposes in the world. Are you tracking with me? Paul doesn't really care. Paul spends uh, almost no time talking about government, talking about the empire, talking about Rome. He's aware that Rome has power over him. He's experiencing it right now. Um, But he really spends very, very little time talking about it. Where does he get that from, I wonder? Huh? 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 There's always one right answer. Uh, Matthew. Let's look at Matthew. We have Matthew up there. Matthew chapter 22. This is a pretty interesting story where um, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to stir up 
um, some dissent against Jesus. And the people in the crowd, it's an interesting mix of people. There's people who are very loyal to the state, the Herodians, and then there are people who want to, like zealots, who want to actually rebel against the state. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him, that's Jesus, in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. Genius. Genius. I think Paul gets it from Jesus. Jesus, frankly, just not all that interested. Spending a lot of time talking about the state, the government, the empire. Why? Because God's going to advance his mission through any means that God chooses. And so maybe, maybe it will be the government. And maybe the government will need to be opposed at times. Maybe, maybe. In this case, God is choosing to work through some incredibly powerful and some incredibly corrupt people to accomplish God's purposes. Paul didn't have to convert them first. If I could just get Felix converted, then God could use Felix. No. No. God's going to accomplish God's purpose, God's mission in the world through any means that God chooses. Amen? I can't tell where you all are. Some of you are like, that's heretical. (laughs) Or if you're on board with me or not. So you can let me know afterwards, I guess, um, in a nice sort of way. Um. So think about Paul for just a minute here. Think about him. Uh, I'm thinking he's, he's, he's probably frustrated, right? Because he's, he's, things have been going great guns. He's pursuing the mission of God. The amazing things are happening. And now it all just is shut down, okay? He's in chains, door slammed shut behind him. And, uh, and the reason that he's supposed to be on trial for the first place never actually gets brought up. Remember why he's there? He says, the gospel, the good news, God's work in our world is for everybody, including the Gentiles. This stirs up an uproar, causes Paul to get arrested. That's never brought up. It becomes about something else. Okay, that's got to be a little bit frustrating for Paul, I would think. Uh, Also, the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders are having an incredibly difficult time interpreting Paul. They don't really know what box to put him in. So, so, So the Jewish leaders, they have to come up with this claim that Paul desecrated the temple. Did he? No. No, he didn't. And Paul can prove it. But they got to put him in a box somehow. We don't really understand this guy. We don't really get what's going on here. We don't get this reconciling church that's springing up all around the world. So, um, yeah, he desecrated the temple. The Romans, on the other hand, they don't really know what to do with him either because they're used to uh, uh, zealots and rebels around the world stirring up riots to try to topple Rome. They're used to that. They're used to putting those kind of rebellions down. But Paul's not doing that either. Now, trouble seems to follow Paul, right? People seem to get really bent out of shape by what Paul says. There have even been riots, if you remember, in Ephesus. But Paul never is stirring these things up. He's never attacking the empire in explicit sorts of ways. So, so, so they have to try to fit him in their box. Well, he's, uh, he's a rebel. 
frustrating for Paul, right? Like, they don't even know what to do with me. They don't understand what I'm saying, where I'm coming from, who I am. And then this, this little detail here, Paul at this point is being kept in one of Herod the Great's palaces. Herod the Great, if you remember, was king when Jesus was born. Herod the Great, an incredibly violent king, uh, tried to kill the infant Jesus. You remember the story? Uh, Jesus, with his parents, escapes, but uh, all the other baby boys two years and under are slaughtered by Herod. Paul's now being kept captive in that guy's palace. So all around Paul are these reminders, I'm not in control. This life is no longer my own, right? People don't understand his message, don't know what box to put him in, don't know how to interpret him. Probably an incredibly frustrating experience, and I'm curious how you and I would have responded in those circumstances. What would we have done? What would we have done had we been in Paul's shoes How would we have interpreted what was happening to us? How would we have seen God's activity or lack thereof in our lives in that moment? I think for Paul, I think for Paul, the thing that allows him to remain faithful to his Lord at this point is this this thing that we've been saying all along, that God's mission will be advanced through any means that God chooses And you know what I think it was that centered Paul on that, even now in this moment of defeat? I think it was the cross. I think it was was the reality that at at, at history's darkest moment, Jesus rose. I think it was the reality that God chose to advance God's mission, not just advance God's mission, but to accomplish victory over sin, death, and evil to rescue all people. I think it was the reality that God chose to do that on the cross. At the moment where it appeared that God had been defeated, Paul knows, no, 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 no. That was, that was victory. That was salvation. That was redemption. So I think for Paul, it's not just this interesting theological concept. Yeah, God can do whatever God wants to do. We can all say that. That sounds nice, right? But for Paul, it was the living, breathing reality of the resurrected Jesus. God's mission was advanced at the darkest point of human history. And so Paul, in chains, door slammed behind him, can say, I think with conviction, no, no, even now, even now, God's mission will be advanced in my life. Why? Because the cross is empty. Are you with me? This is how Paul puts it. Do we have Philippians, Valerie? Do we have the Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11 passage? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. This is at the center of Paul's life. And this brings us to point number two, which is the last point. We remain focused on God's mission, whatever the circumstances, when we trust God more than our circumstances. It's one thing for all of us in this room today to say, God's going to do what God wants to do. God's going to accomplish his purpose. God's going to advance his mission through any means necessary. That sounds pretty good. 
And on the 4th of July, that sounds like a great thing for us to kind of stand up together and say, God is in control. We swear our allegiance to Jesus. So, yeah, that sounds good. But our theology can never be divorced from our actual experience. And so what is our experience of that? What is your experience of God's mission being advanced no matter what's going on in your life? Do you believe it? Is it true for you? Is that your experience? Or, or do your circumstances determine your understanding of what God is doing in and through your life? Paul says, I want to know Jesus more than anything. Becoming like him. This is at the center of Paul's life. This, listen closely, does not change whether Paul is in prison or not. Some of us confuse the means of God's mission in our life for God's mission in our life. Do you hear what I'm saying? Some of us confuse the means of God's mission in our life for God's mission in our life. So for Paul, what was that means? He was an apostle. He was a church planter. That's what he did. He traveled around the world. He was a missionary, right? That was the means, that was the method of God's mission expressed in his life. But was it the mission in his life? If it was, then God's mission was stopped the minute that Paul went to jail. Because he could no longer be an apostle. He could no longer be a missionary. He could no longer be a church planter. Those things, all of those things had been taken from him. He had nothing left. Some of us confuse the means of God's mission in our life for God's mission in our life. So for some of us, for some of us, it's our career. It is. We've seen our career as God's primary way of exhibiting God's mission in our lives. So you're a school teacher and you've given up a lot to be a, a, a school teacher in our city. Your job is not even secure for this coming year because of the budget cuts. But your understanding is that this is God's mission in your life. This is what you are called to do. So you're willing to make sacrifices for. You're willing to, 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 to do things, to go places that other people wouldn't be willing to do. What happens when it's taken from you? What happens when the city of Chicago says, there's no money, you're laid off. Sorry, you're not tenured, you're laid off. Is the mission of God still present and active in your life, or does it feel like it's been taken from you? Because if it feels like it's been taken from you, then you've confused the means of God's mission in your life for God's mission in your life. Are you with me? Parents, parents, what happens when your kids grow up? What happens when they graduate from high school? What happens when they move out of the house and you have poured everything into them? Your lives have literally revolved around those kids. You have seen it to be the expression of God's mission to, to, to nurture, to love, to encourage those children. And now they're gone. What's left? If there's nothing left in that moment, then you've mistaken the means of God's mission in your life for God's mission. And Paul doesn't do this. Paul doesn't do this. Let's put up the rest of the Philippians passage. These are the verses just preceding. Now, now remember, at this point, Paul's in prison when he writes this letter, okay? What we're, what we're watching happen right now, this is when he's writing this letter, okay? He's in prison. Everything's been taken from him. 
But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Valerie, just go back to that first slide again. Paul had gained Christ. Paul had discovered the greatest treasure in this life, Christ. The righteousness of Christ given freely to him. Paul said, I'll give everything up. How can he say that? Because the mission of God expressed in his life is, I have Christ. I possess Christ. I have gained Christ. Everything else is rubbish. Because I, And I can say, I've lost it all. My will even, gone. My control, gone. And Paul can say, I consider it now all rubbish compared to that which can never be taken from me. Christ. Paul doesn't mistake the means of God's mission in his life for the actual mission of God in his life, the mission of God in his life, Christ present abiding in Paul from which he lives out of. What happens if it's all taken from you? What happens if if it's all taken from you? What's left? Paul had nothing left. But his life still had purpose. His life still had meaning. His life still had definition because he had Christ. And not Jesus as a one-time conversion decision. Jesus as that which Paul said, I've given my life to this. I will sacrifice everything so that I may retain Christ. We remain focused on God's mission, whatever the circumstances, only when we trust God more than our circumstances. So we've seen, we've seen that God chooses to use rejection and opposition to accomplish God's purposes. And, and that should be good news to us, I hope, because some of you are being opposed right now. Some of you feel like you're being rejected right now. And and, and the good news for you, the the word of grace for you maybe this morning is God's there. God's there. God's present. The mission of God will not be hindered by any opposition that you're experiencing. Could Could it be that that same opposition is actually somehow going to advance God's mission in our world? Could it be? How many of you had the experience where where a year, two years, three years, five years later, you've looked back on a circumstance that felt absolutely devastating to you? And you look back on it and you go, oh, oh, that's what God was doing. Have you had that experience? Have you had that moment? Yeah, Darius and me, we're there, we're there. Where you look back at that moment of just utter loss. Where, where it appears that you, you have no longer anything of your own. All power has been taken. You've lost the person closest to you. You've been laid off from the job that meant so much to you. 
your academic achievement that you've based your entire identity around has been taken from, whatever, whatever, whatever. And it's not till a year, two years, three years, five years later where you look back and you say, oh, oh. The mission of God was advancing, not, not in spite of that, but through that. God was choosing, God was choosing to advance his mission even as I was experiencing that. And can I tell you that that's a sign of maturity? If you're able to do that, if you're able to look back on your life and see God's work in hindsight, that's a good thing. That's the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, allowing you to look back and say, God, God was there. God, that's mature. Can I tell you something else? Can I challenge you a little bit? What would be even more maturity in Christ is in the moment of the rejection, in the moment of the opposition. When, when, when all circumstances would seem to say otherwise, in that moment, still being able to say, I, I trust him. He is enough. Some, some of us, that's, that's asking way too much. And that's okay. That's okay. Some of us, it's enough to say, look, I got so much in my, in my background. I got so much hard stuff in my background to look at. It's going to take me another five, ten years to be able to get to that point of being able to say, God, right now. I trust you. You're enough. But can I tell you that growing up in Jesus, can I tell you that, that being resurrected into new life in Jesus means that, that we don't stay the way we are right now. Amen? That, that we are daily being transformed into the image of our Savior. So that like Paul, we can say he is enough. Take it all. It's rubbish. It's rubbish compared to Christ. Worship team, go ahead and come, come back on up. I, the, the, these things for me, they're always tricky to say because I realize that when a pastor preaches a sermon like this, it can sound really flippant. It can sound kind of like Christian spiritually language, right? Like disconnected from our actual lived experience, the way you and I know life. And I, I, I don't want to do that today. And so, so honestly, if today for you, it's just, if today for you, it's just God is present now, that's enough. Okay. Okay. If for you, that's, if that's, that's the, the word of hope and gospel and grace in your life, the word that because the cross is empty, that there is no means that God cannot use to accomplish his purposes in the world. If that's it, if that's, let that be enough for you today. Can that, can that just be grace in your life today? Can you be hopeful in that? Can you be encouraged in that? That because the cross is empty, because at the darkest moment of human history, God accomplished ultimate victory, that there is nothing that God cannot use to advance God's mission and purpose in your life. Let, can that be grace to you today? Can that be good news to you? Can that be enough for some of you? There's nothing in your life. There's nothing in your life. There's nothing that you have experienced, are experiencing, or will experience that will get in the way of God's purpose in your life. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And maybe it'll be five years. Maybe it'll be 10 years before you see that, before you know that. That's okay. 
he's enough. And maybe for others of us, the word of grace with a little bit of challenge is, can he be enough right now? Because you're in the thick of it. You you are in the mess of it right now. Where it does not make sense. Where it feels like everything, everything has been taken from you. Where it feels like everything that used to define you is no longer there. It's gone. Job, family, relationships, financial stuff. I don't know. I don't know. But you're, in, you're at the point right now where it's, it, it's gone. And you're having a hard time even saying, who am I? What is my identity? Can the word of grace and challenge to you today be right now, right now, right now, he's trustworthy. Right now, right now, he's bigger than your circumstances. Right now, in some maybe mysterious way, the cause of Jesus is being advanced through your situation. Maybe even through pain and brokenness and confusion. Have you found anyone else? Have you found anywhere else that was worth your trust in light of Jesus? Is is there anything that is more trustworthy? Have you found anything that is more trustworthy than Jesus? I want to be able to say with Paul, he's all I want. Because I've gained Christ, I lack nothing. Because I possess Christ, because Christ is in me, I have a hope that is not contingent, that is not contingent on my circumstances. It could all be taken and I would still possess Christ because he has chosen me and you. Let's, let's pray. Let's pray. Jesus, um, Jesus. Empty words, empty words, aside from the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Take us off of any emotional roller coaster. Take us off of any emotional high or low, Lord Jesus, and speak truth to our hearts. God, we take great courage and encouragement in knowing that nothing can stop your mission, that you're going to choose to advance your mission in ways that confound us, befuddle us, confuse us, cause us to wonder, really, Ananias? Really, Felix, that's how you're going to do it? But you're going to do it. The empty cross is our, uh, our witness to the fact that nothing, Lord, nothing will ever stop your mission. Nothing will keep you from redeeming, restoring, and recreating your people and your world. That chapter is, is done. And so we take courage. We take encouragement in this truth. But God, some of us, some of us, we still have a lot of growing up to do in you. We still have a long way to go till we can say with Paul, right now, everything has been taken. And yet I consider all of what I have lost to be but rubbish. In chains, in prison, no control, no will. But I possess Christ. 
know, maybe we have a long way to go to being able to say that, God. And, and, and that's, that's your grace that you're, uh, we are relying on. The Holy Spirit, can I ask that you prod us, that you prompt us, that you do whatever you need to do in us so that we could be growing up to you in this way? So that we could be people whose trust is unshakable. So we could be people who never mistake the means of your mission in our lives for your actual work and presence in our lives. So that however you redirect, whatever may be taken from us, whatever opposition, persecution, pain that we experience, even in the midst of it, we can say, not in a flippant way, he is enough. He has always been enough. He will always be enough. Holy Spirit of God, we pray that you would do this work in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd love to tell you more things to pray about. For Bronzeville, come down. I'll I'll talk to you a little bit. Wednesday the 21st, concert of prayer down in Bronzeville. Uh, Receive this benediction now. I'm going to... I'm going to read these words that we already read, but I'm going to read them to us. Philippians chapter 3. But whatever was to our profit, we now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, we consider everything a loss to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. For whose sake we have lost all things. We consider them rubbish that we may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. We want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. Have a great day. Have a great day.